Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Nick Davis! Nick Davis! I don't believe it! I see it, but I don't believe it! Hello and welcome to a new episode of I See It But I Don't Believe It. I'm Gemma Bastiani, as always, and I'm joined today by someone who I've literally just met who I did when uh, we found out we were going into stage four isolation or another set of isolation in Melbourne. I did a tweet asking if anyone wanted to talk about their favourite footy moment because we're all dying otherwise inside. Um, so... <laughs> Today I'm joined by Dan, who he took me up on that offer, and I'm very happy to have him here. Hello, Dan. Hi, Gemma. Uh, nice to speak with you this morning. Yeah. It was. Um, it was. I, I, I slid into your DMs as, as horrible and as tacky as that sounds, but um, I guess my my bona fide so far as a, a football tragic and a sport tragic go. Um, I played uh, local footy for for kind of twenty years. Was a, a born into a very uh yeah a passionate Collingwood family so I think I've still got a, a pair of um like knit uh, uh wool booties in the Collingwood colors that my grandma gave me when I was born so like really strong um passionate uh, uh Collingwood family um big uh, sport lover uh, I started my own pod with a couple of mates uh, recently which is the average team podcast and I think that's where our, co- our paths kind of crossed on Twitter and um, yeah, kind of went from there and was keen to ch- come on and have a bit of a chat about things. So amazing! I I was really excited to see um, you get in touch because I love to get in touch with people that do their own podcasts and kind of meld the kind of styles of each. So it's, yeah, it's really cool. So this will be fun. It's also fun for me to look back on because this was as the Swans were preparing for their first premiership in seventy two years. So that was nice for me to look at some lists and things like that. <laughs> I've, I, uh, I said to you um, when we were just doing the introduction before that I've had so much fun um, doing some research and going back through this and watching the old uh, YouTube highlights but also some of the old articles and um, just having all these memories um, kind of coming back. So I think what we're doing is focusing on the, the Collingwood Almost era of 2002 and 2003 and um, as a pie supporter, that is just a side that I just – have so much love for and and of all the, the pie sides um, through my, my time, I'm in my mid-30s, um, this is one that just has a really strong place inside my heart uh, and a group of guys that um, 
didn't have any right really on paper to, to perform the way that they did and it, it spoke to that real peak multi-house ability to get the best out of a group and um, yeah this was a lot of fun so yeah I'm looking forward to pulling this apart a bit, uh, today for your listeners. Yeah amazing so what specific moment did you want to talk about that we're going to kind of lead into? So um, it's a Saturday uh, at the MCG mid, mid-September in 2002 and Collingwood are playing uh, Adelaide in a prelim final and uh, I, I was there, I was there with my, my brother and my old man and uh, we were sat about six or seven rows back um, at the city end and I was literally on the end of the aisle and then there was nothing but a, a metre uh, concrete step between me and the Adelaide cheer squad. So it was um, it was just a, a really, really special, fond, fond memory, special memory of mine, and, uh, yeah, 90,000 at the G and a super tight contest right in the faces of the Adelaide cheer squad. And then Ryan Loney breaks um, from half back uh, and takes four bounces through the centre of the ground, drops the huge raking left foot kick of his and hits up Anthony Rocker um, about 55 out from goal. And this is the middle of the third term. It's been a seesawing encounter. It's been a super physical hard contest. And, um, And cool as you like, Anthony Rocker, kind of goes back, uh, lets one go from just inside the square and it goes through kind of post height, just about hits me and feeding him off, I thought the MCG was going to explode. The, just the sheer noise and volume that came um, out of the, the Collingwood supporters and, the, and the, uh, the MCG for that goal for me is one that I will never, never forget. So um, that was that was the moment. <laughs> You're in the perfect spot for it too. <laughs> <laughs> Rocker has, like so many of these Collingwood guys around that era, um, you know, well, often maligned as much by their own supporters as anyone um but an anthony rocker and his his brother sav as well a a rocker goal from outside 50 is just one of those things of beauty in in the um in the game and obviously you can for the impartial supporter i defy you not to go on a youtube look at some of their highlights and just not you know find yourself in a wormhole because it's um it was a it was a thing of beauty and, and being there live the context of the match um, the crowd uh, was, uh, yeah, was well, that was my moment for sure. <laughs> well, I do love talking about the Rockers because, yeah, they're like symbols of my childhood as well, even though I wasn't a Collingwood or North fan where they really kind of made their mark. They are a memory, like a key part of the 90s, I guess, footy-wise. Yeah, yeah, and I'm um, not so much here to talk about Sav, but I think Sav's a really interesting one that I, and I get quite passionate about. Um, you know, he kicked... Um, I think he's kicked six or seven hundred goals. You know, he's the only guy who's who's got that many who's not yet, um, you know, a, a, a life member or Hall of Famer as well. So I don't think that he quite gets the the recognition that he deserves um, in a similar way, maybe as someone like Tom Hawkins now, who's you know played a, over two hundred games, kicked a lot of goals, and been good for a really really long time without ever, um, you know, winning the Coleman or whatever. But um, certainly Anthony through this period and doing my research. Um, yeah, Anthony had a really couple of pivotal um, years through 2002 and three, and we'll talk about a bit later his report in the prelim against mm. Port, and and then missing subsequently missing the 2003 final. Um, Malthouse is on record in a in a podcast I listened to the other day saying that he felt like Rocker was actually the barometer of, of that side through that period, and his loss in 03 was was one that was um, really really hard, hard to overcome. So yeah, um, the Rockers were good fun. The Rockers were very 90s, and um, this team has got a really 90s um, late 90s feel about it too. So yes, it definitely does. So <laughs> well, let's track back from that 
specific goal in the O2 prelim to kind of work out how they got there because you did flag that Collingwood hadn't really seen finals for a long time. They hadn't been a successful club for a long time. So at the end of 1999, Collingwood were wooden spooners for the second time in their history. Tony Shaw had just been sacked with Malthouse coming in as the replacement. And you'd played um, the final game at Vic Park as well. So a bit of a kind of movement in terms of era as well. Absolutely, yeah. And probably living through that, I didn't quite appreciate the significance. I guess I was in my kind of mid to late teens through that period. And the, and the pies had been junk since about 94. Um, so whilst I, I, I followed footy and I played footy, um, I didn't ever kind of connect with the Collingwood side um, probably that, that much. And you look, back at it now historically and it was a huge period of transition where um through the 90s you still had guys like a brown and chris isker and, and rocker your monkhurst um it was victoria park it was that whole flora eater pika thing um but i think Maguire came in uh in 98 really with a a, a uh a view of of trying to bring collingwood into the 21st century i guess and uh and, and part of that was you know, the unveiling of, of Malthouse in that Lexus. You know, that's an image that I think most people can see in a tribute to his time at Collingwood. And it was very much a changing of, of the guard um, without going too much into the on-field stuff during that time. They did finish last. Um, they brought Malthouse in and he just completely renovated that list. And that was all about um, Maguire putting his stamp on the club via Malthouse and Malthouse doing that with the team. So at the end of 99, um, there's uh, 11 list changes. He delists nine and, and two retire, including Monkhorst. His first season is 2000 and they end up finishing second last. But they go through seven and, and 15, and at the end of that year, he gets rid of another 14, which do include Sav and Chris Siska and some of those guys. So he's 20, 25 um, guys he's turned over in 12 months. And through the, the 99 draft, we actually get um, Josh Fraser, uh, Reshaw, Leon Davis, Ben Johnson, Shane O'Brien, uh, and, and those five guys just become synonymous with, with Collingwood over a decade. Um, so immediately he's uh, he's got rid of some of the, the old guys um, and, and brought in this this fresh wave. And and then from there, they um, they start to build. So Yeah. Uh, Reshaw noted uh, Sydney Swans Premiership player, might I say. There's, uh, yeah, 2000 and t- 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 2012. Yeah, we're going to talk about two uh, Sydney Swans Premiership players during this. So I just thought <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so Josh Fraser was notably the number one pick out of the 1999 draft as well. So he was kind of the beacon for everything that they were signalling over the next few years. He actually, yeah, 36 listings over two years. And they finished, after going wooden spooners, as you said, they finished 15th out of 16 at the time. With, but they had seven wins at 85.9%. So it was, a, it was a market improvement on the previous year. St Kilda were the wooden spooners that year with only two wins. So they were still a fair way off the bottom of the ladder. Yeah, and that that was really the time I think that they started to 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 build. So following the completion of the two thousand season, that's when things get us to get really really saucy so far as the that list rebuild goes. Because with those fourteen blokes that are moved on um, via the draft, they pick up Alan Didac, uh, yep. Jason Cloak, Ryan Loney, um, and I think end up with Wakeland and Chad Rintoul, um, and that and yep, Guy Richards, and, and they so they get Brody Holland and Jimmy Clement out of Frio, um, as well as they pick up Malloy and Steinfurt. So Malthouse is looking for guys um, 
compliment some of the kids that he's brought in, but also um, you know foot soldiers that he know uh, knows can come in and play a role. And and um, the Collingwood supporters and uh, and AFL followers will will know of Mick Malthouse's fondness for that fat bottomed midfielder. You know the slow fat bottom midfielders that he had at West Coast that he goes to um, for the pies in guys like Holland and Rintoul. Uh, and guys who really sum up that team for me in Lacuria and O'Bree and Scotty Burns as well. So not the most dynamic or explosive guys, but guys that, um, you know, Malthouse knows will come in and compete and, and play to a structure and, and give their all, which is what I certainly remember of that team around that time. So Yeah, and it's interesting to note the fact that Rintoul came through the preseason draft and all those other guys, obviously the national draft, but they also traded out Mel Michael, Ricky O'Larenshaw and Paul Williams in that time as well. So even though there were older guys that were still competing and successful and contributing they still made a clear decision that they were the trade value to get these sorts of guys in so Paul Williams obviously went up to the Swans and um, Mel Michael went to Brisbane so interesting that's a decision that would come back to probably haunt them in a couple of years time that one yeah um and the rookie draft it wasn't a whole lot out of the, this rookie draft either but Nathan Lovett Murray did kind of get his start in football through this rookie draft as well and and so did um uh Jay Pod as well that was one that I missed at the time but James Pod the Adsley was actually on the the pot yeah 2002 rookie draft as well so it's interesting to see some of those names going through and again part of the fun I've had with this is is going back through and seeing um those guys that have passed through the doors um, during that time, Scotty Cummings was another one that they got in. I think at the start of two thousand and one, only played a year, but um, you know he was in the he was in the black and white stripes as well at one point. So it, it spoke to Malthouse, um, yeah, really wanting to put his stamp on on that pie side, and he wasn't afraid of making tricky calls. Again, we're jumping around a little bit with timeline, but he got rid of Nick Davis after. Um, after 2002, at the end of 2003, moved on Heath Scotland. Like Paul Williams, like Mel Michaels, these were guys that had currency, that were, were good footballers, but um, either didn't fit the setup or, or he felt he could use to bring in other assets to the club. So, Yeah, that's the tricky part of it. I was joking before we even started recording this that I'm not dealing well being in isolation and uh, <laughs> watching Melbourne trade away all their important AFLW players, but... The reality of football list management is you have to give something to get something. So, yeah, correct. Rational Gemma has taken over finally. It's only <laughs> welcome um, back, Rational Gemma. <laughs> uh, heading into two thousand and one, the Pies were the least experienced and youngest list in the competition, which I think is interesting to note because yeah, it did signal the huge changes that they were making at the club to. Uh, see, okay, I don't want to say prepare for sustained success because that's something I want to touch on later. But it was something that was very much they were setting themselves up for something for a tilt. It, it was about kind of it was about kind of making Collingwood relevant again. I think there was there was a, a real desire and hunger from the the Collingwood faithful and and for um, a big part of the mandate that Maguire had was to come in and make dare I use the expression, make Collingwood great again. Um, (laughs) I can actually see uh, Eddie in a MAGA hat as well, but let's just move past that. So um, part of bringing in Malthouse in was was not – um, not being prepared to wait any longer for success. There was a, a bit element of 
element of urgency about the recruiting during that time and what they were doing. So it, um, he was the impetus, Malthouse was the impetus, um, and it certainly felt like they were building towards something, yes, but they also wanted success too. Um, you know, they wanted to shortcut it as well. So that's why they were probably making some of those bigger decisions at the trade table because 10 years in the wilderness was was certainly enough as far as Collingwood and Maguire and that were concerned. So, Yeah. Uh, so in 2001, you won 11, lost 11. So again, an improvement on the previous year, a percentage of 106.9%. I always include percentage when um, we talk about kind of ladder positionings and finishing positions because I think it gives you more insight into the win-loss ratio than just <laughs> numbers. That meant you finished ninth on the ladder, so just missed finals. But again, clear improvement year on year was encouraging for fans. Brisbane were the premiers that year, their first premiership um, as the Lions. And although it was disappointing to finish ninth, it was a big improvement. And it, they probably felt like they were on that the, the right track there, I think. Yeah. Um, just in the last couple of days, uh, I think sponsored by Jim Beam, Day, uh, Daisy Thomas is doing an interview series and he had Malthouse on, which was really kind of relevant to this. And... As he talks about, uh, Malthouse talks about the start of the 2002 season where they actually um, dropped the first couple. And after the round three loss to Carlton, the C- um, Greg Swan, the Collingwood CEO, basically tells him that he's gone and the board are going to move him on. Now, thankfully for, for Malthouse, he goes on to win the next five in a row. And I think um, they end up being um, kind of six and two after eight rounds. But it was to 2001 and how that ties in is they, they finished um, ninth with 11 and 11, but they only won three of their last nine games. So including a couple of blowouts. And I think did had they not messed up that last month or two in 2001, there was a high likelihood that they would have played finals. So the poor end to, um, to 2001, a slow start to 2002. And, yeah, unbelievably, um, Malthouse's position was, was – um, you know, uh, pretty yeah, pretty uh, pretty tenuous at that point. So um, I'm, yeah, I'm again, curious to ask this question of different people, um, particularly people whose footy opinions I know very little about. What are your feelings on how long a coach should have before starting to be under pressure? Oh, good one, good, uh, really good one. Uh, often comes back to the expectation versus reality. I think if you take Justin Longmuir, for instance, at the moment with Frio, there's not the expectation that they are um, in a win-now um, period. You know, everybody's quite accepting the fact that they go through the rebuild. So I think he'll be given a little bit more, a um, little bit more latitude. Um, in other instances where the, where the list is there, where the fan base is hungry, you're probably not going to get – and if the pep coach comes potentially with a slightly bigger expectation or reputation, then they're going to get less um, less of a honeymoon period, I think. So as a player, anecdotally, um, you know when a coach has kind of lost the group as well. So I don't think it's necess- It's not always about a, manner, uh, a period of time. It can actually be um, quite quick the way uh, a, a dressing room loses its its confidence, its motivation or whatever, and, and, um, and the message stops getting through as well. So, yeah, I, I, um, yeah, it's a, a long answer to a short question. I think it depends on the coach and it depends on the list, but certainly um, it, it, this – 
the, the board losing patience with Malthouse after two years, again, probably reinforces that whole, we've just had enough of being crap and, and we want to win now. They paid a lot of money to get him over. They'd probably they'd given him what he wanted at the trade table um, and they kind of weren't getting it done. So there was certainly an impatience to, to Collingwood through that time. And- yeah, it's interesting. I it Probably the issue being media's perceptions of a club. Yeah. Yep. It's not always the reality of what's happening inside it. So media pressure on a coach is rubbish. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's all about column inches. Yeah. Uh, yeah, when they start to smell the blood in the water, I think that's where it can become really untenable. So regardless of what's happening in the in the change room or within the four walls, when you've got coaches who are being doorstopped, um, I live in, in, in Brunswick in Melbourne, not far from uh, Vizzy Park, and I, over the last year or two I remember going for my morning run when Bolton was in those last couple of weeks and and the, the AFL media would be camped out there from 7, 7.30 in the morning, you know, door-stopping players, door-stopping officials. That kind of scrutiny on a, on a club becomes unsustainable, regardless of how good he might be with the group or as a leader of men or as a player development coach or whatever. Um, once you've got that level of heat on you, um, you know, there's not too many who manage to get out of that alive. Probably Hardwick and Buckley in recent times are the ones who have the clubs of, of – um, you know, maintain the course and got through that level of scrutiny. But, but um, you know, there's a there's a graveyard of, of AFL coaches, I think, who um, probably, uh, yeah, were, were done before their time as a result of, of you know, um, partly due to that, that um, AFL media um, kind of pursuit, I guess. Yeah. Thank you. I got the answer I wanted. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Happy AFL media. I'm here for it. Uh, in that 2001 draft you got another five additions so richard cole came in at number 11 tom davidson at 27 mark mcgoff at 43 dane swan at 58 and 72 tristan walker and realistically none of those guys played more than 60 games for the club except for dane swan um scott cummings came in in the preseason draft he played five games for collingwood he kicked five goals in his first game but then injury just forced him into retirement really and then the rookie draft which he flagged before james pods yadley who ended up not playing a game for collingwood but going on to be a premiership player and then just a bunch of guys who really didn't do a lot so the the thing i'm trying to get at here and we'll kind of as we go into the next year as well the recruitment isn't like when you look at Hawthorne in 2003 and be like, oh, they set themselves up with these two drafts for a long-term period of success. This was very much like who can come in, impact right now and help us right now rather than for the next 10 years type thing. Yeah, it was it was very much built um, more through the trade period, which was unique um, for that probably time as well, yeah. rather than through the draft. Um, it's interesting with Cole. That was two thousand and one. Was the super draft? You know, um, Judd Hodge Ball, and in picking Cole with eleven, they actually overlooked Del Santo, James Kelly, Steve Johnson, uh, Lewis Robert Thompson, Sam Mitchell, Lee Montagna. Yeah, the list goes on. <laughs> yeah, the only redemption. For um for Derek Hine during that time was probably the fact picking up Swanee with fifty eight, which is yeah. um yeah one of my favourite stories. But uh, yeah, it was it wasn't it wasn't the kids so much at that point. And Collingwood had a, a um, swing and a miss on a few players during that time. I think 
we also had uh, and then, but there's, a, there's a bunch of guys that they kind of took high. Um, Bo Nixon, I think, was one. Um, he was kind of 21st pick. Uh, so that yeah, they had a, they kind of had a couple of fresh areas during that period, and it was probably some of the younger guys that were bought in through '98 and through '99, um, like Lacuria and, and and some of those fellas, uh, and, and the guys that they bought in rather than um, having a um, having someone come in immediately and make an impact. Didact certainly probably fits into that category, but more as a, a again, a role player through that period rather than being the superstar that he was in 8, 9, 10, et cetera. Yeah, and Josh Fraser is the other one that's yep. quite obvious. But, yeah, it, yep. I I do love – and I ha- – okay, I have person, many personal opinions right now, but I, I hate it when they go back and they're like, let's redraft this year with no content. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. the club development that is provided to them or anything like that. But I do find it interesting to go back and kind of pinpoint the area where a club really set themselves up for their their sustained success. And, yeah, Hawthorne's a really easy one to pinpoint because they got a whole bunch of priority picks for it. But, you know, I was expecting to go back through this and be like, oh, they built their list through yeah. Yeah. getting all these, like, lower draft picks like – Dane Swan and that really set them up, which but just wasn't the case at all. Uh, That's what I think. The more that I read into this, the more interesting I became with it because it it, we phrased or framed this as Collingwood's almost era, but by two thousand and four, two thousand and five, Malthouse has blown this list up um, to start again. And again, we're probably jumping around on timeline a bit, but this is not a period of success. Collingwood should have had necessarily um, on on paper um, through the guys that they've bought in, so they didn't get a, a bunch of kids. It's not easy to put your finger on in the way you're referring to. Um, but again, for, for whatever reason, Malthouse was actually able just to, to shape and mould what he had in a really kind of um, terrific way. Um, but by 2004, he basically went back to the board and said, I've got as much out of this group as I can and we need to go back to the draft. And then it was um, via the draft in that St Kilda or Hawthorne fashion where they go, Heyshaw, Trav Cloak, um, Scotty Pendlebury, Daisy Thomas and Alan Toovey um, in a kind of two-year period through three, four, five. So that, that's when they did it. This period is about just cobbling together this absolute patchwork quilt of journeymen and, um, say, you know, some, some staunch Collingwood people and and, and almost rolling um, one of the great um, premiership teams that we've ever had in the in the um, Brisbane of the, the three-peat Bears. So, yeah, yeah, that Brisbane- makes it all the more remarkable for me, I think. Yeah, it was insufferable because my grade six teacher in 2002 was a giant Brisbane Lions supporter. I think he had like 600 Brisbane polo shirts that he'd wear <laughs> every day. And when, they won the, when they won those two finals while I was still in primary school, oh, my God, it was insufferable. <laughs> shall we move on to 2002? Yeah. Uh, again, Collingwood was the long, youngest list in the competition and this year in the second least, exp- uh, the second least experienced. Um, I think the thing we've missed talking about the drafts and things like that is some of the key names that were actually already at the club at the time. So Nathan Buckley was there, Scott Burns was there, do you have the list there to go through a few more of those guys? 
Yeah, um, I guess, guess like guys like um, Presage Como um, as well. I think I mentioned um, Aubrey, they got back through 99. Uh, yeah, so there was certainly um, some pretty decent um, footy players already in the books. Uh, Tarkin Lockyer was the guy that they picked up out of the rookie draft. Uh, Lucuria. So there was there was already the, the bones of some pretty reasonable um, footy players. I think the thing about Buckley being given that um, – the captaincy win '99, they really struggled. But but once he got some support around him through that midfield, it just freed him up. And uh, yeah, he he grew um, he grew ten feet foot tall during the 2002 2003. Some of his numbers during that time are quite incredible. And again, through through hindsight and through history, we, we tend to often malign players and we tend to forget or overlook certain things. But um, he had uh, uh, multiple um, Copeland trophies during that period. He obviously wins the 2003 Brownlow. Um, he was he was a phenomenal player during that time, and there was there were um, games through that period where he would just put the pies um, on his back and and carry him across the line, um, which he certainly did his very best to do in the in the 2002 Grand Final as well. I think that goes down as one of the best performance, individual performances on Grand Final Day. It just so happened that it was in a losing side. So, Yeah, it's, um, it, I, I, it's really interesting to look at, I think, because, again, for this era being like my late primary school era, when you th- thought of Collingwood, you thought of those five or six guys that we just mentioned. So mm. luckily, the Curia, those sorts of guys. But... The reality was the list didn't run as deep as maybe when you think about an Essendon side from 2000. It's like from the first player on the list right down to the 22nd player on on that team, you're like, okay, yeah, I do remember that name. Whereas when you go through Collingwood's, it's kind of like, well, you remember the top 10 of that that team and then it kind of falls away a little bit. And that probably, yeah, that's a that's a great that's a great call, Jaron. And I think. That probably is um, partly why they didn't ever, you know, win the win the premiership or or, um, or or were never able to get over the top of um, Brisbane. And so you you look at that two thousand and two grand final team, and there's still names like Carl Steinfurt, uh, Glenn Freeborn, Rupert Bathurst, and Steve McKee. Now they they not household names. And and certainly when you looked at the depth, you looked at the bottom four of that Brisbane side and it was nodding um, and it was Headland and, and they batted so deep and they were just absolutely, um, uh, you know, they were at you all the time. And just a, a wonderful period of footy. I get really nostalgic thinking about this period of time again. And obviously you can hear the enthusiasm in my voice because you look at the, some of the lineups that the, the Pies played during that time as well. So the, the 2002, um, we go through 15 and uh, – sorry, we go through 13 and 9. We finish fourth. Mm-hmm. Um, but Porter – or- 109.7%. Yes, well done. <laughs> port, port, port finish on top. Um, they went out in straight sets the year before, so they they were um, they were keen to to make amends for that. Obviously, Brisbane were just starting to build something, so finished fourth, but not really expected to do much. But some of the sides they were playing against that Port Adelaide side, where you've got names like um, Hardwick and Wanganeen and Laid and Treadray, and yeah, I. I, I um, it just felt like you had superstars on on every on every line of every team. The Adelaide team, 
um, that played, they played off against in that prelim. You know, guys like um, names from the past, like um, Nigel Smart and Nathan Bassett, you know, great, uh, you know, if virtually all Australian defenders, guys like Goodwin and Rashudo and Bickley and McLeod. I mean, these were just some wonderful footballers and also incredibly tough as well. So, um, A lot of premiership players as well because they had just come off back-to-back premierships too. Yeah, so, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it was really like the small guys coming up against the the three really big sides at the time. They're the sides that that era represents as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's so the I guess the that finals campaign for two thousand and two is is one that I kind of reached was the basis of me reaching out for this for this episode. But it was just one that I, I remember being so very um, proud of it, with the Pies. It was our first finals in um, in eight years. The, the Pies fans have been starved of of any success and were so hungry for it. They go to um, Adelaide Oval. Uh, Adelaide Oval. They go to, to Footy Park in Adelaide for the qualifying final against the first place Port. Yep. Um, without Buckley, Buckley, right? Without, without Buckley. Bucks is injured and somehow get up by 13 points in what I reckon is actually my favourite Collingwood win of all time. Um, Lecuria gets 40 possessions. Um, Leon kicks three. Um, the, the game seesaws all, all day. Hostile um, port crowd. Um, there's a, a famous Ben Johnson tackle um, where I think it's Sean Burgoyne goes to um, one of might be Peter goes to kick a goal basically from the top of the square late in the last quarter, which would have put them back within a point. They were coming at that stage. Um, Ben Johnson gets the rundown tackle. We go end to end, you know, and and end up coming away with that for, for 13 points. Great, great win. Um, Against uh, against the odds and against a really fantastic opposition, um, and then yeah rolls into that prelim, which is the Collingwood Adelaide game that I, I mentioned off the top. Where um, yeah, that was that was just another really really tough encounter. Even with a full MCG crowd um, that I spoke about, you could just hear the contest and the collision of bodies every single possession for the game. Uh, I remember that quite vividly too. It was just such an in- incredibly tough encounter. And um, those foot soldiers that Mick bought in, um, we kept going through Burns and, and Lecuria and Holland and these guys, it, they were just relentless. And, you know, the, the balls in a paddock type thing against Rashudo and Goodwin was, was just something. Spectacular, so yeah, and that that rocket goal that you described at the top of the episode was that kind of the moment where you felt like something special was brewing in terms of potentially being able to win a flag. Uh, pro- probably not at that particular moment. You just you swept up in the um in the emotion of the day. It was probably as we started to pull away. Um, I think that the, the pies going on to win. Uh, we kick eight goals to three, I think, in the in the second half, um, and, and we kind of run away with it. So by that, um, probably later in the fourth quarter, you're sitting there nudging the old man, going, "Shit, Dad, do you think we can get grand final tickets?" Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, but prior to that, it was it was such a seesawing encounter. Um, the crow is actually led by by a goal by six points at half time. So. Um, 
yeah, very much focusing on what was happening at that time. And it probably wasn't until um, Loney broke off halfback, hit up Rocker, and he puts one post high that the Pies faithful really started to believe that they, I think they, that put them, t- took them from 12 to 18 points and, and probably put it beyond Adelaide at that point. And it was maybe, maybe from there you allowed yourself to think, yeah, shit, we're, we're actually playing in a, in a grand final next week. So <laughs> that's, it was, a, and I mean, the 90 grand final, you probably weren't old enough to appreciate, right? Absolutely, yeah. I think I was probably six or seven at the time, um, was living up um, in country Victoria, up in Echuca, and I only remember that um, I watched it with my 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 mum, uh, my sister and my brother because my old man had at the, at the 11th hour got a standing room ticket with one of his friends. So my old man got a leave pass, I think, back in 1990 to go and watch um, up in the, at the standing room at the G to watch the Pies win and I don't think got home until sometime on Sunday. But, yeah, as for the game itself, I have virtually no recollection. So, yeah, that was um, – to be uh, at the G at the prelim, um, knowing that you're going in next week's quarter, quarter special feeling. It certainly was a was a pretty pretty fun afternoon. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> so you go into the 2002 grand final as massive underdogs against reigning premiers Brisbane, who have guys like Simon Black in the midfield with Michael Voss and you know Jason Ekermanis and Jonathan. Brown was playing at the time, I believe. Yeah, this yeah. Brisbane list is like still touted as one of the best teams, best midfields we've ever seen in the game. So for this kind of thrown together team with a few stars and then just a bunch of other guys on the list to go within nine points of them was pretty remarkable. Yeah, it, it absolutely was, and and. That Lions side was just so strong. I've got the, the list here in front of me, and you look at the names, and and even guys like Craig McRae, uh, Martin Pike, Luke Power, you know, the Scott brothers. They just they didn't have a, a weakness or a soft spot, and probably sound like a pessimistic Collingwood supporter here, but <laughs> I, I I remember at the time um, I was actually playing in a. Uh, an under-18 final the following day on the Sunday. So we watched it um, with my teammates at our coach's house. And I remember watching it and I just felt like there was this air of inevitability about the Brisbane win as, 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 as good as the Pies were, as, as um, heroic as, as, as they were, um, it just seemed everything that Collingwood threw at them for that day, um, Brisbane had an answer. And, and um, yeah, and, Probably why I speak and use the word pride when I talk about that team because they just had no right to get as close as they did. They really had no right to get as close as they did. And um, yeah, there's a there's a, a huge moment halfway through the second quarter. The, the pies it was a bit of a wet day, certainly wet earlier in the day. It cleared as it went on, but scrappy um first quarter. The pies were fumbly early and blew a couple of chances. Um, they managed to hang in there and. Through the second quarter, Scotty Burns, and you probably remember this moment, even if you don't recall it clearly. Scotty Burns absolutely kills Voss. He he, he gets him with a hip and shoulder that would would legitimately kill another man. Um, Voss somehow bounces up, gets to the next contest where he handballs it off to um, to Black, who snaps a goal. And you just see that. And as a supporter, you just go, "These guys are effing terminators." Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. A friend. Uh, so I'm not sure if you've listened, but there's a podcast called How Good's Footy that um, good friends of 
this podcast, um, who you, everyone's heard a couple of those guys on this. One of them, Sean, um, who I always joke hates me that doesn't actually hate me. Um, <laughs> he's a big Brisbane fan and he tells me about that moment all the time, just recites yeah. it at, at just like completely random times, just reminds me that that happened. <laughs> I never, never forget that, that happened. <laughs> I'm glad, I'm glad he's your mate, not mine, because that would drive me to insanity. I've got full admiration for it as well. That, yeah. That's the thing. I just Scotty Burns was such a hard player. Voss has got his arms in the air, I think, as well, and Scotty flattens him, and and there's, he has no right to get up, let alone make it to the next contest and, and get at the handball off the black. There's a... There's another moment, I guess, in the third quarter where um, the pies actually come in that in that third quarter. And we get up by as, as many as about seven or eight points, I think, you know, and, and from there it turns into an arm wrestle and the, the lead swaps hands a number of times, um, changes hands a number of times for the remainder of the game. But um, pies are struggling a little bit. Um, certainly Brisbane have cranked up the pressure. Um, Chris, uh, Johnson kicks out um, long um, to that kind of MCG southern stand side only for Tark and Lockie to intercept with a mark. He handballs um, off to Buckley, who's boundary side, and basically from 52 out and about two steps inside um, the boundary, puts one through post high to actually put the pies up by five. And it's it's just um, it's it's goal for goal, it's tit for tat, it's your star versus my star. Buckley has a moment like that, and you're thinking, yeah, maybe we can do this. Only for a couple of minutes later, Voss to basically do the same thing um, for the Lions with about a minute and a half to play, which basically I think puts them up or, or gets them basically closes it right down again. Um, just before the three-quarter time siren. And that is just so symbolic of that day where it's everything the Pies do. You know, Brisbane Brisbane can counter. And um, those those two moments alone, both of them involve Voss, um, yeah, it's just sum up that day for me where despite the best efforts of the Pies, um, they they can't um, they can't quite uh, have – they don't have the answer. They don't have the answer or whatever they come up with, um, the Lions have, have – uh, have you know something better? So, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm this. no, no, it's 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 crazy. It's 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 good fun. Honestly, it's good fun. <laughs> so, just a, a few kind of technical notes about that game too. Cloak was suspended for it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So. Um, <laughs> We're talking about Absolutely. Jason Cloak. But... Jason Cloak. So it's almost like there's a, a, a black hole has opened up um, round about that um, half forward flank at the, the punt road end because the two incidents um, in the preliminary finals that result in reports are almost identical from Collingwood players. And being there live, the, the 2003 prelim as well, the deja vu is so real. But in 2000, <laughs> 2002, uh, yeah, Jason Cloak. Um, gets Tyson Edwards high, kind of coming off a shepherd. Um, he hits his head quite badly when he hits the ground. I think he ends up with a broken jaw and a concussion. Um, Cloak uh, gets gets two weeks. And um, when you see that Lynch has kicked four um, on grand final day, not that he's the difference, but that loss certainly hurt. Now, um, if you look at the, qual- the qualifying and the prelims, um, Cloak's numbers – we can't quite go back far enough to understand the matchups, and it's not a lot of footage of those games. But on the raw data, um, uh, Cloak has um, twelve spoils um, in the prelim 
he has he has I think eight or nine in the qualifying final. So as a presence, um, really he was one of those I guess people I hate you saying this one of those first intercept defenders. You know the Collingwood set up in a way that he sagged off, and he, he um, again is a guy that probably copped a bit of crap later in his career. But he had like three or four years where he was taking um, taking everything down there. Really nice pair of hands, and was huge in the air. And his loss on on Grand Final day when you've got a um, when you've got Bradshaw when you've got Lynch Brown. That's so much that they can throw at you. Um, yeah, Wakeland and, and Pressy just had their hands full all day. So yeah, yeah. and the delivery to them as well was a <laughs> yeah. thing. Like you can do all you can as a defender, but if that midfield is sending it to those forwards, I mean, you got no hope. Um, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I, I, I won't. Um, I, I can't get through this pod without talking about a guy who um, was probably my favourite player of that team. At that time was Jimmy Clement. You know that that Pies back six was a really, really good back six. Um, Wakelin and, and Presti again, great, great keys. Um, ben Johnson was just harder than a cat's head. Um, Clement was was really brave. Was a really nice ball user. And Loney was probably a little bit questionable about how. Hardy was at times. You had that beautiful you know, rebounding left foot as well. So that Brisbane side, you can you can do so much right, and the Pies did so much right in that that two thousand and two grand final. But um, yeah, it wasn't enough. <laughs> the other one to note was Rocker, who kicked four goals in that game as well, which kind of matched what Lynch was able to do at the other end. Yeah, yeah, he was he was huge. He kicks it and um, a really important goal early um kicks one from about 50 55 out um which kind of settles the pies and that's when the pies are like okay we're we're on you know i, I, I subscribe to um, that mold house theory that he's the barometer you know the buckley's the man um but but he's the barometer and once he puts that through that's where i think they go okay yeah we, we belong here um he has a he has a shot um part of the way through the fourth quarter where Again, Brisbane, the, the, the lead is, is changing hands. Brisbane are coming again. Um, he bombs one this time going towards the city end uh, from in front of that, that southern stand side out, reasonably tied up to the boundary from about 40 out, and he celebrates off straight off the boot, um, yeah. and it gets it gets called as a point. And I think that was a, a that was a pivotal moment. He'd kick four. That goes through. Um, who knows? But um, I think from there, Brisbane more or less go up the other end of the ground. Um, Acker kicks that left foot snap over his, his shoulder, and it kind of takes it out to nine points. And there's really no score for the last four or five minutes of the game. So um, what might have been? But Rocker was huge um, in that game. He was uh, he was sorely missed in the in the O three um, grand final. Uh, I think. Yeah. It's no no coincidence that um, he, he misses 2003 and that game's a blowout. And the other thing is that Buckley won the Norm Smith. He's only one of three uh, Norm Smith medal winners from a losing side. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I always feel the need to um, to justify my comments as a Collingwood supporter when I come out in support of my own team. And I, it feels so strange that I have to defend Buckley in this way. Um, the, the dude had 32 possessions a goal and, and, and um, of those 32, 12 were contested. It was, it was actually a Herculean effort. And again, you go off the. It was like Buckley versus Brisbane in that midfield. So um, Lap, uh, Lappin has uh, twenty nine. Voss has about twenty four or twenty five. Black has twenty two. Um, 
Bucks has 32. The next highest Collingwood midfielder is 18. And that's why it was, you know, that's why the whole thing had this feeling of inevitability and this whole thing of, of one-upsmanship, no matter what Bucks did. Yeah, the lot he was. It was almost like he was playing four on one in that midfield. But yeah, yeah I, 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 just a huge, huge, huge performance. And whatever you think of the guy, and as a as a player or a coach or whatever, that is is a is a huge, huge effort in in um in anyone's terms. I think. Oh, it's massive. And um, <laughs> oh yeah, incredible to watch play. And like same as James Hurt. Like no matter yeah. what they've yeah. done since they've played and. Okay, I should clarify. They were still very good players no matter what's happened since they played. Doesn't mean that they deserve anything now. And that's, no. And I'm saying that more because of someone else who's given a job on Friday Night Footy after you know, yes, yes. women like shit. So that's why I wanted to clarify that. But like James Hurd, you still remember fondly the way he played because he was incredible. Um, doesn't make him a good person, but... I'm 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 with you 100%, Jim, and I'm actually glad you mentioned that particular Channel Seven supporter as well, because that's a that's a source of some frustration to me as well. I reckon. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. Anyway, less said on less said on that, the better. But um, yeah, yeah we, we do we, we do have a way of demonising opposition players, I think, and it is part of that um, you know really uh, primitive nature of, of sport and tribalism of, of sport. Yeah. But, um, yeah, but Bucks, Bucks was huge that day, played it, um, played it outside of his skin. There were some guys who didn't play that well. And, and, and that will be probably the, the, some of the footnotes that I want to include in this when, before we wrap up, but, um, you know, Tarrant didn't kick a goal in any of the th- three finals. Yeah. So Tarrant kicks 50, uh, three goals in 2001. He kicks 54 goals in 2003. But 0-2, he, he struggled with form and fitness a little, little bit um, and was was not invisible, but he certainly didn't hit the scoreboard in any of those three finals. Yet um, Josh Fraser uh, kicked, I think he kicks three on grand final day. Yeah, uh, Rocket kicks four, Fraser kicks three. Um, Fraser also kicked a couple. Um, he kicks three in the, the prelim. And so he's actually awarded player of the finals for that year, yeah. for 2002. So uh, Josh Fraser was was another one who just had a, a at that period of time, this was, was really quite influential. In his third year of footy as well. Yeah, not bad. Yeah, so let's move to the off-season list management decisions because, mm-hmm. again, um, I want to go through these a lot. Uh, the 2002 draft, you got in Bo Nixon, Luke Shackleton, Cameron Cloak, David King, not that David King. Um, and <laughs> In the preseason draft, you got Luke Mullins. Yep. And then a real kind of gem of this whole drafting process was the 2003 rookie draft where you picked picked up Nick Maxwell. Yeah, yeah, this it's um it's quite a cool analysis to do when you start to see some of the names that that pass through um during this period. So even though um we spoke about Swan being picked up in 2001, he doesn't play. He doesn't have his breakout year until 2007. Yeah. Um my pop who's no longer with us was a, a, a mad Collingwood supporter, and he somehow, in, well into his 80s and 90s and pre-social media, seemed to know what was happening, what was going on within the four walls of Collingwood. I, I think he had some old friends um, who kept him reasonably well informed. And I remember my pop, you know, telling me, this Dane Swan kid's got to be something, and you'd see him as this fat little kid with bad hair. Um <laughs> so, but he 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 was still there. Um, Nick Maxwell starts to come through. So, um, yeah, it, it's 
all the while that the, the, oh, the whole time that this is going on, I guess there is still the the names that that um, follow through and, and continue through to two thousand and ten and eleven, which is which is pretty cool. But um, yeah, they had a bit of a fresh area there with with Bo, um, but their big move there comes. Um, when they pick up Wowie for pick fourteen from Melbourne, I mean, you have a a, a Brownlow medalist kind of drops into your drops into your lap. Now um, yeah, you can was, argue uh, that merits of him as a player as much as you want, probably similar to a Kearney or or, or a, a Pritis, um, Yeah, they don't not necessarily viewed in that upper echelon of, of players or greats of that time. But Brownlow medalist walks into your club in the preseason. Um, having made the grand final the year before, confidence is obviously going to be pretty high heading into 2003. Yeah. Um, my, I mean, this is like dropping names, but mum is from the country. She's a big Melbourne supporter. And they obviously, you know, footy players often come from the country. Her neighbor was a Melbourne player at the time. Mm. And the awareness inside Melbourne at the time of that Wawoden trade was that literally no one knew it was happening except for the person making the trade happen. And Woden was overseas and just got a call saying, oh, you're a Collingwood player now. Yeah, right. Very that's strange, yeah. Yeah, it's one that I've I've kind of got no real grasp of. it, And then remember at the time just being like, oh, really? Yeah. Like, cool. Like, <laughs> cool, we got we got Woden. But um, players didn't mm, change clubs the way they do now. Um, during that period as well. So it was, it, I mean, they, there was certainly movement, but um, the draft period wasn't the made-for-television kind of spectacular it is now and we don't have all the column inches and stuff. And, it, yeah, it was, it was certainly I remember hearing, being like, oh, yeah, cool, we, we got um, we got Wowie. So he, um, he uh, I think he nearly plays every game in 2003 and it's quite a valuable contributor. It's um, quite sad that uh, I guess he, starts to battle with his body kind of after that point. I think 2003 and four, he has some really good years, but boy, he's done by about 2005 or 2006, I think maybe. So he's really only at Collingwood for, for probably a four-year period. But um, yeah, so again. Most it, people think of him as a Collingwood player more than they do a Melbourne player now anyway. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah cool. Yeah, that's how I view him really, um, even though he did win the Brownlow at Melbourne. Yeah, that's interesting you say that. I... I it's a further example of um, the pies being hungry for success, but I think it kind of um, it maybe it's a bit of a shift in in Malthouse's mentality where he goes, yeah, we're in the win the the win now yeah. um, phase. You know, he's he was only building this team. We're talking about two thousand um, that they finished second last in two thousand and two. They're in a a grand final. So where he was probably or might have been prepared to be a little bit more patient, I think all of a sudden they go, hey, um, Nick Davis is a bit of a favourite son, but, hey, you're going up to Sydney and, and we're getting Woe Woden and, and this is kind of what we're doing. So, um, yeah, I, I, um, he was he was a good pick-up. 2003, the Pies have a have a better year. You know, the 2003, they finish second and they go 15 and 7. So they um, – yeah, they 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 build again after um, after two thousand and two, which might have been the fluke. Two thousand and um, by two thousand and three, you know, they deserve to be there. Yeah, as compared to um, this is surprising type thing. Um, yeah, interesting. You mentioned Nick Davis. He yeah, he was traded out in this one as well. So it was Damian Adkins who didn't really do a whole lot, and Andrew Williams came into the club via trade that year too. Um, Nick Davis, notable Sydney Premiership player who. 
uh, exploits this podcast is named after. So, uh, yeah. Davis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, 2003, as you said, uh, finished second on the ladder. They went at 121.6%. So, again, market improvement across the board for the club. Um as you said, a stronger home and away season, finishing second on the ladder rather than fourth. Buckley won the joint Brownlow with uh, yeah. Sydney Premiership player Adam Goods. Yeah, could do. Mark Rashido, obviously. Yep. Um, Bucks they- wins the AFL coaches um, MVP as well yep. um, for that year. So he, he has a he has a blinder. Literally, the only thing Buckley doesn't have is a premiership. <laughs> Somewhere in um, like southern Queensland, his heart has just broken. Like he's he just <laughs> he, he was just sitting down to his breakfast and just felt chills down his back as you were saying that, Jim. <laughs> so they they have a an impressive, fairly consistent home and away season. Once they hit finals, the qualifying final, they beat Brisbane, the reigning mm. premiers who they just lost to by 15 points. So that was a huge sign. How were you feeling after that game happened? Oh, I was 19, I think, and living in Melbourne, my first year living in Melbourne. So I was probably feeling pretty drunk and pretty cocky. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just like coming from, <clears throat> coming from, again, a Sydney perspective, which I always bring, in 2005, Sydney lost to West Coast in the first round of finals and then came back to beat them in the grand final. In 2006, they beat them in the first round of finals and then went on to lose in the grand final. So that first week of finals for me is always such a like mixed bag of what it actually suggests about the rest of the final series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good call. I, yeah, it's it's a funny one. Um, I don't know if they got too far ahead of themselves, but 2002 is about that whole underdog thing. Yeah. You know, why not us, us against them, you know, all the cliches, batting above your average, all that kind of thing. Um, and that's where the Collingwood Army is, is getting behind them. Um, I think 2003, yeah, we, we, win the, we win the prelim. Sorry, we do the we win the qualifying final by 15, a reasonably low-scoring game. But um, people are starting to uh, uh, question whether the, the Lions are done. You know, they've been up for three years. I think a few of their senior bodies were a little bit sore. I, know, I think their midfield was pretty flat that day. And Bucks has 32-2, and two, that qualifying final. Um, Tarrant kicks a couple. Dodak kicks a couple. Um, and, yeah, I think there's some, some real belief that, hey, we're going to go one further. And I think... The, the bubble gets burst. The bubble gets burst in that uh, in that second quarter, I think, on grand final day, and and having mentally, I think, having convinced himself that they were a little legitimate threat and a legitimate chance. Then, when that happens to them in that second quarter on grand final day, I think it just it, it becomes too hard. It becomes too much, and I don't think they cope. Um, cope a little bit, probably bit psychoanalyzing that a little bit, but I think there was something about the way in which they beat the Lions. The, the prelim is quite comprehensive. They win that by 44 against Port, Port, um, against Port. So, yeah, lots of Colin, uh, confidence. Um, Collingwood going in as favourites um, this time around as uh, where they were underdogs a year before. And, um, yeah, wow, uh, the, the grand final tells us everything you need to know. I, my note for the grand final is hugely disappointing. 
disappointing beaten by 50 points that's that's literally all i've written about the grand final <laughs> yeah i've i've thought i um i did say to you off the top that um i'm kind of on job keeper at the moment so i've had a lot of hours to give to my research so i've got pages and pages and as people are listening to this they might hear the pages of my notebook turning for all the, the stuff i've got written down 2003 grand final. It's a really brief summary in my, in my book, man. There's, there's, there ain't there ain't much to say. Um, it's it's uh, it's 35 to 20. I mean, oh, we'll dive into it now, I guess. But yeah, the, it was it was really really disappointing. Um, the rocker report with the elbow um, on laid from the week before really hurts them. Um, it's it's 35 to 21 at quarter time in that grand final. Um, you know and, and I remember Brisbane just came out swinging that wounded pride, pardon the pun, the lions and the wounded pride, but um, <laughs> they um, they kicked six to one in that second quarter and at half time the margin's about 42 points and it's game over. Yeah. Um, and, and they just showed their, showed their class. I think um, what's interesting about the 2003 team, if I may, is that I don't know if it's a better side than the 2002 side. I know we get, um, I know we get Wowie in, but um, it looks a little bit different. And 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 this time, um, Cloak plays. He's he's completely ineffectual. I think he only has a handful of possessions for the day. But um, you've got Ben Kinnear and um, and and War- uh, Tristan Walker play on Grand Final day um, as part of the two the two bigs in that Collingwood forward line. Now, yeah. with respect to those guys, I actually. Um, funnily enough, actually worked with Ben Kinnear um, in the corporate world about a decade or so ago. Lovely fella, but Kinnear and Walker uh, um, um, don't have long careers. They don't play a lot of football, and and um, yeah, I just I don't know on paper if if uh, if that two thousand and three team um, stacks up. And um, again, probably the the. The, the the bottom ten guys in that team, the lack of depth in that Pies team, I think, come comes back to hurt him again, um, un- unfortunately. And uh, yeah, uh, Acker kicks five, uh, Lynch kicks another four, and uh, yeah, it ends up being a bit of a rout. Yeah, let's um just just on the drafting thing, I just want to touch on the draft that followed this grand final as well, because it's, it's an interesting pattern for Collingwood from the 1999 draft kind of through to the 2003 draft. It was very much like there was one, one long-term prospect that they drafted in that whole process every each year, rather than a couple of guys that could really have an impact. So yep, yep. 2003 draft at 17, they took Billy Morrison, whose name I had never heard of before. <laughs> 32 they took Braden Shaw 35 yep. they took Brent Hall 48 yep. they took Heath Shaw I remember that vividly yep. he, I went to school with him um, <laughs> he was in year 12 I was in year 7 so he was very loud um, so <laughs> I can imagine a very brash uh, young man I would have thought yep love to wear shorts with really high socks so preparing himself for his future as a footballer I guess <laughs> In the, in the blood, I mean, if if not for the um, the father sons during that time, you're right. Collingwood actually tank. Um, Jason Cloak, Cameron Cloak, uh, Heath Shaw, Travis Cloak, all come through that period. Otherwise, there's a there's a um, yeah, they they certainly miss more than they uh, they land during that that period. That's that's for, for damn sure. And the rookie draft, they really didn't get anyone of note either, and they traded out Heath Scotland. So yep. it very much felt like they'd 
done all they could and then just fell off the cliff in 2004. And Malthouse told the board that he'd just done all he could, right, at this point? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'll go back through my notes where I picked that up from, but there's a there's a, um, a really good kind of long read. I think it might be Martin Flanagan, who's a um, obviously a, a well-known um, sports journal, but also a Collingwood Club historian who... Um... Uncle of Sydney Swans Premiership player, Jude Bolton. <laughs> You're the best. I love. I love the Hello, way you sprinkle those sprinkle those swans um, <laughs> facts through it. Through it. Um, so he basically, yeah, Malthouse. I think at the um, at, at two thousand by two thousand four, he's basically gone to the board and said he's the group's exhausted. They're exhausted, and he's got as much out of them as he possibly can. Um, which is which is interesting. Um, but yeah, and then at which point they, I think they decided to start a bit of a, a rebuild essentially. So having spoken about all those foot soldiers that he, that Malthouse brings in, um, over 2002 and 2003, he's um, delisted Jared Malloy, Glenn Freeborn, Rupert Betheris, Carl Steinfurt, Chad Rintoul, Scott Cummings. At the end of 2004, he gets rid of Mark McGough and Steve McKay. Uh, so... Speaks to the short-term nature of that team. This, yeah. this is, um, and again, why I guess I'm probably a little bit fascinated. It was, it was, yeah. He got them in. He had the parts. He, you know, like drawing your drawing your undies out of the bloody laundry basket. He rings them out in the most in, in the best way he possibly can. He gets absolutely everything he can out of them. Um, but by 2004. It looks like they're pretty cooked. Um, I think the, the psychological scars of that grand final and then, well, the repeat grand final losses was huge. Um, and by 2004, we start to see um, Buckley have some real trouble with his hammies. So he's, he's peak Buckley in, in 2000 and kind of one, two, three. By f- 2004, his hammies are pretty well cooked. And, and whilst he continues to play for a couple of years, he never um, quite uh, reaches the heights that he does in, in, 2000 and, in, in those seasons. Yeah, and 2004, youngest list in the competition again, won eight games, lost 14. And I think, again, the most interesting part is that the percentage dropped away to 91.2%, and they finished 13th on the ladder out of 16. So it was well and truly like just that brief point close to the top and then falling completely away. At the end of that year, you'd go on to draft Travis Cloak and elevate Nick Maxwell, though. So that kind of felt like, as you said, the rebuild, but it felt like a rebuild for 10 years, not immediate future. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a, that's a reasonable comment, I think. Um, so the, 2004, they moved to um, to the Holden Centre or the Westpac Centre as well. So I guess within a five-year period from 99 to, to 2004, there has just been this huge um, cultural change at the club you know everything that um uh, maguire has has wanted to do in in um, bringing the the club um success in in using his media profile and platform to um promote the club uh, sponsors facilities i mean at the time that's the best facilities of any um club in in victoria so they've really gone from the cold showers at vic park and the wooden spoon to you know back-to-back grand finals, this brand-new um, performance centre. So it should be onwards and upwards from there. But for whatever reason, 2004 is a, is a bit of a car wreck. I think there's some injuries there. 2005, there's 15th. We finished 5 and 17th. And, um, yeah, the rebuild's on in earnest and, and out of the ashes. 
it, it feels a little bit deja vu for the pies because we, we just did this. You know, we have been shit for so long through that late 90s. There's a bit of frustration there, but out of the ashes, um, you know, what I mentioned before, we, we have the Shaws are cloaked, Pendles and Daisy. If there's a better top two out of um, um, a single draft for a club um, and, and then two of you later in that draft as well, and it, it all starts to to build again from there. Um, 2006, Ben Reid, Nathan Brown, um, gold sack, these kind of guys. So, Yeah, change of mindset in terms of how the success was going to be brought to the club I think was really important and obviously led to that. 2010 premiership um yep. speaking of 2010 though I, I did want to touch briefly before we wrap up on the parallels that kind of can be drawn to st kilda's era between 2009 2010 as well because it very much felt like they did a very similar thing they came up they were the underdogs they just missed out they they improved again the next year had an impressive list and then just couldn't get the job done and completely fell away yeah, I just I people um to my my girlfriend's often asking me just kind of why I love sport the way I do and and I'm one of the I, you can ask me what's happening in the fourth grade Scandinavian and handball and I can name you a, a favourite team and a favourite player I love my Premier League um and my NBA and my cricket and all of that and I love sport for its ability to provide drama and to provide narrative and storyline providing you know where to look so I, I think there's as much drama in, in in sport is there anything that you'll find in netflix or um in a dan brown novel so you know i i, I there's some so there's some wonderful footnotes to to that almost era of the early noughties but also 2010 where um you know uh, malthouse and buckley the, the succession plan but you know leon davis um is is infamous for um going statless in that 2002 grand final um yeah he's the greatest indigenous player to have played for, for collingwood um he's a cult hero but his reputation suffered um significantly um for his failure to perform on the big stage which is really really sad because he's a, he's a player that i idolized um but oh two he has zero stats in that grand final oh three he, he has 10 possessions so he plays a little bit better and kicks a goal but isn't doesn't really impact um He's still on. He's one of only a handful that are still on the list in 2010 for the for the Collingwood side in that flag. Um, the drawing grand final. Uh, he only has six touches and a goal, and then he's actually dropped for the replay for Tyson Goldsack. So again, so Leon actually never finishes with one, yeah. which is I think is a great cruelty. Certainly had his chance, but um, that him being dropped for Goldie in um, in 2010 sticks firmly in my mind. Um, Preston Giacomo in, in probably the most selfless but also heartbreaking story he plays in um those those defeats in 02 and 03 um just such a, a stout resolute no frills defender um he tears his groin in the prelim i think against uh geelong in 2010 trains all week um, and then they do the uh, famous story. They do the grand final parade after the grand final parade. The team's kind of standing around there at the treasury building or whatever, and he basically tells the boys that he's not right 24 hours before the game. Um, so he misses both games with a groin strain, and yeah, he's another guy like Leon who who um, who doesn't get a end up getting the flag. Um, what's a beautiful touchdown at Collingwood is 
as a result of that gesture, after he retired, uh, the first draft pick from every draft now gets to wear the number 35 as a basically a permanent um, nod to his selflessness and, and team-first attitude. Um, so they're, they're probably the two. Ben Johnson gets to play in one in 2010. He gets to redeem. Chris Tarrant, um, after going goalless in that whole final series in 2 he only kicks one goal in the 3 grand final, famously goes to Frio in 2007, a bit like the Wowie thing where you improve your list, the Pies get him back for 2011. So Tarrant miss goes away, comes back for 11 and 12, and is part of the losing grand final. So Tarrant never gets one. So I'm quite interested in the haunted legacy thing, and that's where you, you've brought up St Kilda with that really kind of long monologue there I've led us into. There's, there's such drama and, and such um, uh, rich storytelling in some of this where um, – guys are, are, are really burdened by this. It really burns them. Um, if you talk to, if you hear Bucks interviewed, not so much now, but certainly early days as a coach, he was motivated by that. Um, I've heard Nick Rewalt speak really um, candidly on um, Fox footy. I think he provides some, some great insight as a commentator, by the by, but um, he's, he's provided some real insight and some real honesty Um since uh, entering the media where he's, he thinks about it every single day. You know, he thinks about 2009 and 2010 every single day and, and these are grown-ass men, damn it, uh, you know, were hugely successful in their own right who have gone and do really, really well professionally um, but are still burned by the fact that they never got one. So um, I think that's, uh, yeah, that's a, it's, um, it's quite cruel, I guess, but, um, yeah, the, the St. Kilda, that St Kilda side was, was a terrific side, really well coached by Ross Lyon. I think Lyon and Malthouse probably share s- some similarities there um, in their coaching style and their ability to um, find players, role players. You know, look, I thought the name, you know, Zach um, was um, Zach, Dawson. Zach Dawson, yeah. Yes, yeah, you know, uh, he, he that's followed, got a, Followed Ross to Fremantle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's got um, Mick Malthouse and Paul Lecuria written all over it. But um, yeah, had lots of good young talent: Ball, uh, Goddard, Rewald, Cozzy. I mean, they were a great side. Um, they, they were a fun side to watch too. Um, I can say that because we actually ended up beating them in two thousand and ten. <laughs> but but that was that was a side that I enjoyed watching play. And um, you know, they will they will think about that period as an opportunity lost in the same way that I'm sure the two thousand and two and two thousand three Pies do. Yeah, because, again, it's not like they built to something, missed the first time, and then got it on their second or third try, Um, similar to Collingwood. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. 
Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. They got there, couldn't get the job done, and then couldn't back it up, but fell away instead. And I think that's probably the worst part for their supporters. Yeah, that, that's that's um, that's certainly hard to accept and hard to hard to understand. Um, uh, yeah, I, I didn't realise it really until we're talking about it now. Is is probably that relationship or that similarity between Lion and Malthouse? You know, hard taskmasters um, got the best out of guys, but but there came a point where you can only be yelled at this, you know, so many times or, or whatever. It just it fractured and then it was a bit ugly and a bit clunky, clunky and. Um, you know, the way that he, he kind of let go of a few of their guys, I think um, the, the guys who remained were upset at the way that Del Santo and Ball were treated. Um, he obviously goes off to Frio and, and St Kilda spend the next um, seven or eight years kind of um, in that bottom half of the table. Yeah. Um, yeah. As, 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 the, as, the, as the pies did. So that's, it's tough how quickly that drop-off can occur after, after success. Yeah which is never fun. It's something that I haven't had to deal with too much, so I'm okay with it. But uh, my family being <laughs> Melbourne supporters know exactly what it's like. Yeah, it was, a, it, was a good, it was a good win last night for you guys too. I think we uh, just slipped that in there. I mean... Um, I'm over the moon. <laughs> uh, I wish we had another... I wish we could go on for another couple of hours because I think we could spend that on last night's game alone, man. What is going on at the Giants? I want to just talk about the Swans. I like. I, I, I get that the conversation after was probably more interesting to talk yeah. about the things the Giants didn't do right. But I think a really interesting conversation is what did Sydney do so right did well, well. Yeah, that made shy. the Giants play that way too? Because Essendon, who are touted as this team that is interesting every year, which I don't get. I don't think they're an no. interesting team. I think they're overrated every year. But last week... The giant, they allowed the Giants back into the game and lost it, whereas Sydney just like had the foot down the whole time as the youngest team in the competition this year and just got it done and piled on four goals to young guys in the final quarter. Like that's a fascinating story to me. Anyway, maybe just a second. They're, they're starting, to, they're starting to, to write their own story up there. I hadn't seen a lot of them this year. Um, and only kind of caught part of the, the game with the Pies the week before, but yeah, there was some some names there I wasn't super familiar with, but I was I was pretty impressed with them during that time. So that that game anyway, they they kept coming, they kept coming, and um, yeah, I think you know right off um, John Longmire at your your own peril, I reckon as well. He's he's, a, he's an intelligent guy, he's a good coach. So yeah, yeah, uh, I won't harp on it, but sending Will Hayward to play a defensive forward role on Nick Haynes was the most genius move I've seen all year. Just gonna say it. <laughs> Uh, I'm glad we can wrap this up with you with a smile on your face because uh, it's been reasonably traumatic for me to go back through uh, consecutive lost grand finals. But I will say it's it's been bloody good fun, and I hope um, people have kind of enjoyed listening to this and and, um, and hearing this. But uh, yeah, it's, this has been a really cool chat, man. Yeah, thank you so much for hitting me up to be able to do this. Um, if people want to find you and your podcast, how can they do that? Yeah, so we are uh, Average Team Podcast, so uh, three average guys who basically um, sit around 
drinking in uh, and watching sport, create a podcast to legitimise sitting around uh, drinking and watching sport. So, Wayne, we take it a bit, as you've probably gathered from this, pretty uh, lighthearted view on uh, on view on all things sport. There's a bit of uh, some NBA, some AFL, um, as well as some um, some craft beer snobbery. But uh, we're on uh, we're on all your, your your podcast platforms. It's just average team. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram uh, as well. But uh, yeah, there's an invitation for you to, to come on any time, and um, and, and uh, we'll return the happy to happy to have you and return the favour. But it's been great fun, man. I am always happy to come and talk about the swans to anyone, literally. <laughs> um, I will link all of that stuff in the show notes below as well so you can find all of those things very easily. Um, I am at GL Bastiani or Play on Radio Melbourne on Twitter. Come and talk to me about football, but don't be a dick because I've had a lot of those people recently. <laughs> for you. Um, this has been another episode of I See It But I Don't Believe It. I don't know when the next one's coming out because, you know, life is a thing, but if you are interested in talking about your favorite footy moment like Dan was, definitely hit me up and I'm always open to ideas. I don't want to talk about the 2016 grand final though, so don't even try. (laughs) Thank you so much, Dan, for coming on. This has been good fun, man. Let's do it again sometime. Heck yeah. And I will catch you guys online. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.